Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is Zachary Carabell. He is the author of the just-published Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman, and the American Way of Power, just out from Penguin uh, Press. Zachary, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thanks, Daniel. Your, your book is really, uh, I, I don't even know how exactly to uh, succinctly describe it. It's a a tale of American uh, political economy through uh, the lens of some individuals and some families. First off, I, I was really struck by it being a tale of political economy. Uh, economists haven't written a history of the U.S. that involved family history in probably a, a century. They were taken over by the Quants long ago. And political science uh, doesn't get into uh, trade finance. They just don't. Uh, you do. You you narrate this and weave this in together. I thought that was really refreshing. Did that strike you as obvious to write a tale of political economy, or did it happen as you were going through the research? No, actually, the genesis of the book was more the the arc of American political economic history than it was, let's write a story about Brown Brothers. Um, and I know everybody wants a more compelling, like, you know, this was this undiscovered firm that was quietly moving the levers of American history. And I thought, oh, my God. And there's a lot of truth to that's why I wrote the book. But honestly, the book began with I wanted to write a story about how money made America. And I mean, it's not as if money has been an unexamined aspect of American history. Uh, de Tocqueville, everybody loves quoting de Tocqueville. It's like when you when you feel the need to uh, borrow authority, everybody mentions de Tocqueville. But he talked about money and avariciousness and American ambition for money. But money is kind of a, a, a fulcrum of American power in the 19th century. You know, the ease of gaining liquid capital to fuel dreams and ambitions and also destroy them, I think was sort of an undertold tale, not untold. So I wanted to write a book about how money made America in the 19th century and how the men, and they were all men who made the money of the 19th century, then kind of enter politics and public service and make the global system of the 20th century. Right. And how money made the 19th and how the men who made the money made the made the world of the 20th century and then where that leaves us now in the 21st. And Brown Brothers really is the perfect iteration of that story, particularly because uh, a, a gaggle of partners in the middle of the 20th century enter the highest levels of the U.S. government and are present at the creation of that system, as Dean Acheson would have said. So let's go back to the 19th century part, though. The tale again, which I thought was incredibly refreshing. I, I the word that came to mind was muscular capitalism. I, I know we're not allowed to say that anymore. I yeah. apologize. Hopefully, I won't be canceled for that. No, I don't but think this so. was That's a historical term that one can use. Thank you. Okay, so it, it struck me as muscular capitalism. Things got done. Things needed to get done. People of energy and innovation needed to figure out how to build the railroad. They needed more, particularly for this part of the tale, how to finance it. Your, your crowd was directly involved in the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, but not the great post-Civil uh, War railroad tales, not so much. But still, they were figuring out, I was struck by the plumbing of international trade, yep. of trade credit, of financing, of how a good gets from the United States to uh, Europe and vice versa, and how money travels. And they were involved, Brown Brothers, involved in that plumbing. And I think a lot of of people interested in how travelers' checks came about and went and, and so forth will we'll find that fascinating. 
but it was a tale of people figuring out problems and getting it done. And you, you are not apologizing for that. No, I mean, I, I wrote a piece after the book got published for uh, Project Syndicate about one of the challenges of our contemporary world is this oscillation of extremes and how we view our past. And that's been an American issue for quite some time, but it's particularly cute today. And what I was trying to say is, look, you can't really avoid the whiteness of American history. And whether you wish to condemn it or celebrate it, you do need to grapple and embrace it. And uh, so, no, I'm not apologetic about the story or the telling of it, uh, nor am I, <laughs> I guess to use another term, whitewashing the past. Um, one of the fascinating things, and you just mentioned the railroad issue. So in many ways, to the degree that which Brown Brothers both funds the creation of the first passenger steam-powered rail line in the world, there had been a small line uh, in Stockton and Darlington in the UK, but it really was more of a test example, and then are on the sidelines for the great railroad boom of the late 19th century, which is partly why Brown Brothers never becomes this gargantuan uh, household name but also part of the reason why it never collapses. So for every one of the Fricks and the Stanleys, Morgan Stanleys and Collis Huntington and Leland Stanford, you know, there's a hundred other people whose names we don't know or have forgotten because they went bankrupt. And they fund the B&O in the 1820s because Alexander Brown, the family patriarch, as a citizen of Baltimore, who's one of the richest men in Baltimore, is worried that Baltimore is going to fall behind New York and Philadelphia commercially, which it was and which it did. So he funds the construction of a railroad to the Ohio Valley, which was sort of the growth area of the United States of the time, largely as a public service to save Baltimore economically, out of the recognition that his private enterprise and that of his sons, his four sons are the Brown brothers, that you cannot thrive as a private enterprise unless the commons, the public environment in which you're existing also thrives. So it wasn't an act of, I'm going to make a huge amount of money building this railroad. It was, I'm going to save my community and thereby self-interestedly do well for myself. The later railroad boom, which was all speculative and all bonds and much, much more capital intensive with much less prospect of returns, they just, it was too risky for their culture. And, and so they kind of abjure speculation, but they embrace public works. And I think that in and of itself is, is a lot of the story of the firm. Yeah. And as you say, it's also started the reason why the firm fell behind uh, other more aggressive firms in both the late 19th uh, and mid 20th centuries. Uh, there, there was another theme that emerged in the, you just, uh, the public service theme, and it's not even yet at the, we're not even yet talking about the Dean Acheson, president of the creation politics. But at the same time that there, this is a tale of muscular capitalism in the 19th century, there's also a thread of gentility and genteelness running through it. And you just highlighted it perfectly in the case of the, the patriarch, Alexander Brown. And it is sustained. We'll get to you know various later points in the book about this, but there's a, uh, with the exception maybe of E.H. Harriman, but other than that, there is a, a gentility running through these individuals, the lens through which you choose to describe American political economy for a century and a half. There is also, in your writing, I think, a wistfulness for that uh, gentility. And I, I don't know, in central, at least that's how it seemed to me that it was 
a kinder, gentler. In the middle of the 19th century, robber baron capitalism. Again, these guys were not the robber barons. They chose not right. to be the robber barons, but they're part of, of, of a, a very muscular capitalism. And yet they were on the soft side. And you, you seem to, to uh, highlight that and, and uh, approve of that. Am I reading too much into your, your writing? It is certainly true. I, I originally thought when I was going to write the book uh, that the 19th century would be about a third of the book, if that. And that the heart, the meat of the book really would be this 20th century period, which we'll get to, of, of them building the, the international system. I, as it turns out, the 19th century is more than half the book and, and, a, and a much more um, important and interesting half than I think I thought before I got into the research of it. And I'm not, you know, I recognize if I step back from my own words, um, that there is a degree of wistfulness for certain values and morals that the firm and its founder and its, you know, his sons and their sons and their sons preached and in many ways practiced. But it's not a wistfulness of we should go back or strive to recreate, right? It's I'm, I'm not reactionary. I'm not particularly conservative, either small C or big C. And it's more that there are elements of their culture that they inculcated over generations that I think are ones that we could constructively and meaningfully apply to our present milieu in a way that would be helpful rather than that was better, we should strive for it. Because, you know, they were embedded in a whole context, even in the 19th century, right? They had this moral approach to capitalism. They had, I think, a mindful approach to, to risk and to the incredible capacity of particularly liquid and paper money to unlock potential, but they were also deeply mindful of its, of its capacity to destroy, right? You know, too much, too much capital was often deluged. It didn't just ballast. And that I think was, is incredibly important to the present day. They were also the main facilitators of the cotton trade, which itself was ineluctably and, and inextricably bound up with enslaved labor of, you know, the men and women of the South who picked the cotton. And that's hardly something one should be wistful of, although I, it doesn't require me to sit in judgment of it, meaning we all know that it was morally unacceptable and, and, and reprehensible. And what's interesting is they knew it too, right? I think one of the reasons Lincoln gives his speech on the eve of the Civil War about, you know, you can't be a nation half slave and half free it wasn't just saying we can't go on with this split. It was saying that so much of the U.S. economy mid twentieth, mid nineteenth century was was using cotton and using that system for incredible economic gain, particularly northern merchants and northern manufacturers, uh, and that essentially a, a nation that's half slave and half free was a nation that was all slave. Right. Uh, and I think the Brown family understood that intuitively because they, they, they become a huge trader of cotton. And by the 1840s, they're, they're really trying to stop being a huge trader of cotton, to diversify, stop actually trading the physical cotton mm -hmm. and just use paper to help facilitate all trade. And it's partly because they don't like all their assets being tied up in something physical and cotton is physical. Mm -hmm. But it's also because they don't want to be tied up in the slave system. But they were and they remained. So, the, the, uh, so again, a characterized wistfulness. I, I uh, understand fair, your point. It's a totally fair read of the book. I'm just right. trying to articulate where I come out as, as you know, yes, they're my words and I wrote the book, but it's, you, know, you don't always get the 
the tone well, precisely right. No, no, no. The tone. So let me give you an example where I thought it was swiftness. Partnership versus corporation. So right. uh, and and I don't think a lot of our readers ever since the 1980s, and uh, I, I don't know that all of our readers, particularly those not involved in finance, will understand the difference and the huge difference that it means when you're putting your own money on the table as a partner in a venture, which was the case for up until the late. 20th century for many investment firms versus what happens now, which is uh, a totally different thing. And uh, so can maybe you highlight the difference between partnership uh, capital raising versus uh, uh, corporate capital raising. And uh, and the uh, I, I do sense you know a, a, an appreciation of the stakes and the behavior of individuals when it's their own money on the uh, being put into the venture. So you're totally right, Daniel, in that from, you know, all the 19th century, well into the 20th, almost all these financial and trading firms were uh, partnerships, and many of them were family partnerships. You know, the Goldmans, the Lehmans, the Schiffs, uh, Brown Brothers, the Barings, the Rothschilds. And part of that was merchant families, well back into the Middle Ages, tended to be family families because... Um, you know, one of the one of the great challenges of trade from time immemorial is if I'm going to send stuff far away to you, whoever you are, I want to know that I'm going to get paid. What's my assurance if I if I part with all this stuff that I've spent money on? How do I know I'm going to get paid? Now, a ship could sink, a caravan could be raided. You can't do anything about that. But the, but the issue of is the person on the other end going to pay me? And then the flip side is the person on the other end is like I I don't want to pay for something unless I know I'm going to get this stuff. And family bonds, where you had family members in each node, tended to be one of the only ways that people were assured that they wouldn't get ripped off. Um, But what it also ends up doing is that, as you just articulated, every deal that a firm like that does is their own money. So they have to think about the risk of the downside even more acutely than the possibility of the upside, because this is a world without a lot of insurance and if you lose your money, you lose your money. You know, it's you're done. And um, Brown Brothers somehow remains more mindful of that because usually you have many people heard about the Lehman trilogy of, of like telling the story of Lehman Brothers. Most firms, most human beings, most societies have a multi generational decay of some founding principles. You know, the third, second, third generation is like, hey, we're rich, let's get richer, and I don't have to worry about losing. Uh, but they managed to maintain that culture, uh, which doesn't prevent them from being greedy, right? It's it's not or like, making mistakes, just not right. fatal ones. Lethal and ones. it also prevents them from ever becoming a systemic issue, yeah. as it did for most of these firms. And I think, you know, that lesson for today, when financial capitalism in particular became shareholder capitalism, where the risks started being much more dispersed. So what I tell people, you know, and many people know this, but one example is. If you're Tim Cook at Apple today, he may not be the best example because he's done quite well, but a deal that some company could do might earn the CEO or one of the part, one of the, you know, executive vice presidents, $10 million. It's almost never going to lose them personally, $10 million. That mm-hmm. loss mm-hmm. will be spread out among shareholders and as yeah. we saw in 2008, the government. And that would have been inconceivable to a firm like Brown Brothers. Their, their upside and their downside... We're or symmetrical. Part. Yeah. So you could contrast that where all the capital invested is really from their pockets. 
and they track it very carefully to the other extreme that we experience currently in, in this country, but let's say most uh, dramatically 2008, 2009, collateralized debt obligations or loan obligations, which are someone else's debt, someone else's debt, someone else's debt sliced up. So it's completely anonymized. People who are investing in it really have no clue what they're investing in. And the people who are packaging it and distributing it and the people who are buying it, it just it, it's become... Lack, utter lack of transparency right. from a partnership structure which was a hundred percent transparent and visible. And, and they knew, I, I and share they knew, wistfulness for that. Yeah, right. And they knew who their clients were. <laughs> they knew who was buying their paper. Not always. I mean, Brown Brothers becomes the major purveyor of paper obligations that undergird transatlantic trade for much of the nineteenth century. And in fact, they're so important to the trade between Liverpool and and New York and Baltimore. Liverpool being the main port that goods entered, that they they essentially make foreign exchange, right? Because there's no published rate of what something was worth in pounds that in in equivalent dollars, and they you know they create this whole system, a lot of which is paper, and there is a secondary market for the paper that they write that they don't control, but they do control what paper they issue, and they're really careful about what paper they issue, right? So they they understood as did many people in the 19th century, a certain amount of, of dispersal of risk, right? They, they would often cobble together deals with other firms so that it wasn't all their capital per deal, right? They were risking some, but not everything. So they're the kind of the early inklings of a coherent system. It's just the way in which that got so out of balance in the past 30 years. Um, and, and, you know, one other thing, just to add to complexity, because I'm all about life is messy and complex and not simple. It like the 19th century was incredibly chaotic economically. And it was only firms like Brown brothers that, that, that to some degree added some coherence because there was no national bank. There was no, you know, national system. Yeah. This is one of the things I, I think readers should, uh, uh, seek out in the book because it is again another explanation of what money was like when there was no central no central institutions. You have multiple currencies. You have specie that is uh, coin uh, metal around. You have letters of credit that become basically currency, and it it, it is utter chaos uh, uh, until we have a national currency and an overseer for whatever you feel about said overseer now. Uh, uh, more than a century later, after it's a century after it's created, the Federal Reserve. Uh, but how things get paid for, and uh, how credit and how business is transacted, and how items are delivered, not across the village, which is easy, but across the country or even across the ocean, which involves forms of credit, paper, letters. This book is an excellent introduction to that, and it shows the uh, the key role that uh, Brown Brothers played in that. Let's move on a, a, a little bit. Uh, get to the 20th century. So these people with this mus vision of muscular capitalism, uh, some degree of evolution, they got involved in uh, railroads, but not so much. They got involved in shipping companies, but not so much. They uh, st decided being part of the plumbing was maybe better than being part of the the building itself. They, you know, rather than become the owner of railroads, uh, sort of become the owner of railroads reluctantly, uh, but they're very keen on being the plumbing. And it works really, really well. It also works really well. I lost the number of count, uh, the count of uh, the generations. Uh, how many, did you actually count up the generations of Brown Brothers? I mean, it's, 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 it's really... You know, six, about, seven, about five, five. Okay. Um, you know, by the six, you're in, 
there's very few, there's very little involvement. Uh-huh. But it's still really extraordinary. I, I f- have followed family businesses in other contexts. One is uh, to get into the second generation is hard. The third generation is almost impossible. This tale struck me as uh, that the, that was an extremely disciplined family that they were able to sustain focus and integrity for as long as they did. But despite their best efforts, they become very successful, as it were, and. As they move on, they get involved in uh, the power structure, kind of an obvious thing. Now, it must have pained a Harvard man quite a bit to have to spend so much time <laughs> on, on the a triumph of Yale University. Are you, are you in therapy about that? Are you okay with that? Do I'm you okay. I've, I've, I've recovered from my, my, my Ivy League blues. Um, <laughs> I mean, it helped the fact that I did the Harvard part as a graduate student. Um, you know, you you just develop a little less affinity for your place by the time you're a graduate student. It's a much more, you know, uh, they're using you, you're using them relationship than it is like rah, rah, sis, boom, bah. And I went to Columbia as an undergraduate and Columbia at that time was always had the, you know, chronic chip on its shoulder relative to uh, Harvard, Yale and Princeton. And it was interesting that, you know, Yale at this sort of late 1890s through, I don't exactly know when, maybe the 1930s, seemed to have a little bit more of a um, kind of a motto of public service ingrained in the elites. And I also talk about, as did Walter Isaacson and and Evan Thomas in their book, The Wise Men, um, about schools like Groton being the the incubator of what Yale then, you know, propagates. This idea of terrain is to serve, that the elites are... um, with great power comes great responsibility. When I keep joking, some people like this joke, some people don't. It's like the Spider-Man view of, of history, you know, that you are obligated obligated because of your power to give back to the commons, to the public good. And look, I mean, a lot of people in the 60s and 70s found this elite whitewashing, hogwash, self-serving pablum. And it, it certainly didn't prevent them from, from, from propagating imperialism and doing things that were really self-interested. But it also doesn't mean they didn't believe this. I think they really believed in public service. It had been, you know, beaten into them probably literally at Groton. And 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 this idea that a stable society requires each stratum of society. And they believed in the hierarchy of a stratified society, but they also believe that each stratum has a responsibility greater than their own self-interest. Otherwise yeah. everything falls apart. And again, contrast that today, I think another reason why this book is so interesting is whether you agree with that or not, it's very clear that the current perception of Harvard, Yale, Princeton is not this. It is not service. It's from the graduating seniors go straight to Goldman Sachs, where they become part of the octopus on the face of- uh, Or they go to Sand Hill Roads. Sand Hill Road or 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 McKinsey, et cetera. And And those institutions- uh, have a narrative of public service, but it's not very convincing. No. Uh, whereas here, the evidence is, uh, despite their failings of great wealth, the evidence is very clear, overwhelming that there is a perception and a reality of public service. That it's a rotating door in the government. The president calls, says, I need you. And it's not uh, that they join the government in order to make money later. They join the government because of the reasons that you've articulated, that uh, the government's in trouble, there's the Depression, there's World War II, and they are expected to serve, and they serve without uh, whimpering or trying to make a buck off of it. So uh, again, there's this genteel version of the upper echelons of capitalism that compared to today's, 
I'm again at the risk of getting canceled. I'm going to say is somewhat appealing as a, as a historian. It speaks to me. And interestingly, so what the one thing people will be familiar with if they don't know Brown brothers is they certainly will know the Bush family and the, the, the origin of the Bush family's fortune is, is Prescott Bush, who is the father of George H W and the grandfather of George W and himself was a Senator from Connecticut from 1952 to 1960. And his money comes from being a Brown brothers partner. It also comes from marrying into the Harriman family sort of indirectly through the, uh, Dorothy Walker, who was the daughter of um, someone who, who ran Abraham Harriman's investment firm and themselves was part of the Union Pacific Railroad. And so they'll be familiar, people will be familiar with that elite. Uh, a lot of people contrasted, oddly enough, George H.W., you know, Poppy Bush's Yale version of public service from his son, who was much more detached from that. Um, and again, they, they really believed in this great power, great responsibility. What I found really fascinating, and I don't have an answer to now, is that the hierarchical world that this cohort creates um, or, or cements, and, and that's part of the international system, right? If you think about the yeah. UN with the Security Council of Five Nations, it was also supposed to have an Economic Security Council, also of a few, and then a Congress of All Nations. It's still a very stratified global system, right? Those with a lot of power have more say. They get to determine what's going on in the Security Council and everybody else doesn't. They give more money to global aid. They support NATO. Um, the world that that frames in 1950 economically ends up being much more egalitarian than our supposedly more egalitarian world is now. And, you know, just easy stats for that. Average differential between the CEO, even of a financial firm in 1955, to an average worker was about 30 to 1. Today, mm-hmm. it's 300 to 1. And I'm not, no, I'm not normatively saying it should be one or the other. I am observ- observationally saying it's wild that, that this very hierarchical WASP elite that was very exclusionary, you know, I don't know that you and I would ever have had a seat at those tables. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't want to go back to that world where it's like, I'm not invited, I'm not welcome, and I'm not listened to. Um, but weirdly enough, that, that world created a more egalitarian culture than our supposedly egalitarian meritocratic world today. Which hasn't lasted, but we'll get to that tor- tor- towards the end. But it, it really was uh, um, a fascinating to read, not uh, not just about pres- uh, the Bush family. I'm a Russianist by training, so for me, the Harriman story is very relevant. Uh, but also, you go on and, and introduce to a wider readership the Lovett family. I'm, yeah. I may be pronouncing it incorrectly. Do you want to do a précis on father and son there? Because talk about public service. I mean, uh, Robert uh, Lovett is is really... There's no biography of Robert Lovett. And uh, I briefly thought about that would be an interesting next book. Although the fact is, I end up writing probably enough about Lovett in this book certainly for my own appetite, um, maybe for anybody else's appetite too. But truly, like one of the more important figures who constructs the American century, Henry Luce, another Yale grad, another Skull and Bones, like all the Brown Brothers and Harrimans, and funded by uh, Harriman, Henry Luce was, Averill Harriman. Uh, so Robert Lovett's the son of Judge Lovett, who, who oversaw E.H. Harriman's railroad empire. E.H. Herman kind of was a, a, a bright shooting, shooting star from about 1899 till his death in 1907. And uh, one of the most important railroad barons. But, you know, again, that has, a, has been overshadowed a little bit by the others. Um, 
And Lovitz, you know, Yale grad enters World War One as an aviator. There were no aviators then, but there's a Yale flying unit. They were known as the Millionaire's Unit because you had to have a lot of money to be an aviator. And then he goes in at the early stages of the beginnings of World War II, before the United States enters the war, as a special assistant to Henry Stimson, who's then Secretary of War, to basically try to get the United States to build a coherent modern air force. So Robert Lovin, in many ways, is the, the father of the modern air force because he's really good with details and logistics. And to build an air force, you need that much more than you need good pilots. Uh, and then, you know, he goes out of government and then he goes back into government. George Marshall and Truman ask him to be undersecretary of state to Marshall. And he helps implement the Marshall Plan and he helps set up the intelligence apparatus and he helps uh, secure the, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which is the precursor to the World Trade Organization. And then he goes back into government as undersecretary of defense again to George Marshall and then becomes secretary of defense. And what's fascinating about Lovett, and in many ways epitomizing the Brown Brothers culture, one of the reasons he's not as well known, although he was on the cover of Time magazine a bunch of times, he's on the cover of Music, I mean, he was well known then, is that he was much more an implementer and an operator. And a, I mean, a foot soldier is probably not quite the right he wouldn't have minded being called a foot soldier, by the way. He would have seen that as a high compliment. Um, he's not this grand idea person, you know, and, and and therefore he gets kind of overlooked. But he is the, he is the guy who gets stuff M- makes done. Makes it happen. Get, get her done. And that's a lot of what I'm trying to say about Brown Brothers in the 19th yeah. century, right? These are not people who particularly wanted to be the story, right? Because they thought the story's bigger than me. I'm not interested in that. I don't, I don't need the attention. Um, and Lovett is in many ways the perfect epitome of that. He also becomes, look, Robert Kennedy, sorry, John F. Kennedy, not Robert, um, wanted him to be Secretary of Defense, wanted him to be Secretary of the Treasury. And Lovett's chronic hypochondriac, even though he lives until his 90s in the 1980s, um, says, no, no, I can't do it. But he recommends Robert McNamara mm-hmm. uh, for better and a lot for worse. And mm-hmm. he recommends Douglas Dillon, who becomes Secretary of the Treasury. And he is one of the voices that leads the United States into uh, Vietnam, along with Avril Harriman, who at the time is Assistant Secretary for East Asia, which is hence a lot of the backlash against this group in the 70s. Like, you did this. Yeah, let's let's get to that. So they've successful. Uh, they keep their head low, uh, their own capital. They struggle a little bit. They mix with the Harrimans. The Brown Brothers mix with the Harrimans. They, they merged uh, during the Depression because they needed to. One, one of the companies had more capital and not enough business. The other biz- company had, had insufficient capital and too much business. Odd mix, but it's all, it's all good. It's all Yale. Uh, and uh, they managed to work it out and they remain uh, in the plumbing. And they're still in the plumbing today. But basically, the firm is not very well known today. You highlight that it's still in business, still highly profitable, uh, still a partnership, still operating in the plumbing, not very visible for retail investors because they don't even serve them. They they serve institutions. But in effect, this, this, uh, this great family story, biogra- biography is history, history is biography, kind of goes out with a whimper and not a bang, which is good for them because they're still in business. But um, a whimper as times change and they stay with the old partnership model as elitism, as service gets discredited. Uh, and, you know, what was writing the end of this book like? And you know, did you struggle with kind of a conclusion as to their significance? I, I mean, I did and I didn't. Um, 
the the past 50 years of their story does not make for scintillating reading. You know, they they are a firm of 5,000 people with $2 billion in revenue, about $500 million in profits dispersed amongst less than 40 partners and all those employees. And the work they do is a lot of like custody work and foreign exchange, and they do wealth management for asset managers and others. They have a thriving wealth management business, a business they help create, which is interesting if you're in that world, but maybe not if you're not in that world. Maybe they help create the modern mutual fund and I'll pay someone else to to give me financial advice about how to invest. They really help innovate that in the 1930s, which is a multi-trillion dollar business now. And it's really worth, I, I am in the business and uh, many of my listeners will be that, you know, as a result of Glass-Steagall and the separation of commercial banking from securities underwriting, the commercial bank was left what do we do? And the result was they couldn't underwrite securities, but they could manage people's securities and advise them. And that becomes in some ways an even bigger business. So as bad luck becomes good luck, turning uh, lemons into lemonade. And that's the path that uh, Brown brothers went down the commercial uh, bank side, not the investment bank side. Their investment bank spinoff fails quickly and quietly as it were. Well, actually their investment bank spinoff becomes Drexel, Burnham, Lambert. And then uh, fails uh, fails, uh, fails later. I don't know. Yeah. Fails dramatically. Yeah. Um, and I think part of what I ended up writing about is, you know, a lot of people, even in the financial world, think, oh, are they still around? Or they kind of shake their heads going, oh, what, you know, they used to be such a great firm. And I thought, okay, in what universe is a firm of 5,000 people, $2 billion in revenue doing necessary work within a complicated financial system for modest fees? Very client focused. You know, in what universe is that a head shake of, oh, what a shame. And it it represents, you know, part of my point in the book is as much as Oliver Stone's film Wall Street and, and Gordon Gecko saying greed is good was meant to be um, a, a warning of what happens, it essentially becomes the heroic version that too many people, both on Wall Street and in public, perceive. And that was in a, in a strange way kind of reaffirmed by uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, you know, the, the DiCaprio film a bunch of years ago. Um, like people love that aspect and they hate that aspect. But if for many people, it is the aspect. And a firm like Brown Brothers is kind of a forgotten footnote, even though if you don't have a lot of people who are just doing yeoman work that's necessary for the smooth functioning of, of an absolutely essential system, the pandemic certainly showed us that if you don't have a functional financial system, um, you know, society does collapse. It's not, it's pretty basic. And and I say that regardless of whether you like capitalism or hate capitalism, it doesn't matter what country you are in the world, without a financial system of, of one functional form or another, you know, the pandemic leads to societal collapse. And so the degree to which you don't think about Brown Brothers, and that we don't hold that up as an example of success, right? There's not a Harvard business review case study of Brown Brothers, because nothing spectacular happened. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no big drama. They didn't bring the world to the brink. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't flame out and and become a parable. Uh, they simply kept doing good work quietly. And they abjured the spotlight because they're not interested in it. Uh, they're not interested in getting too big. And, and, and we should lionize that. I get why we don't, right? It's not, it's not drama. But it doesn't mean that systemically it's not vital. And I really did come to that pretty passionately at the end. And, and that's why I think I really I really enjoyed this book. And I, I thank you for writing it. And I think others will as well. Again, the volume that 
uh, is just incredibly antagonistic to how the volume of noise about how uh, uh, currently that is antagonistic to the plumbing of the system and how it works is very loud. And uh, your work says, whoa, whoa, you know, let's take a look at this. I mean, this is this ultimately in a complex society is important. And here are examples of people who got it done without the Hollywood greed and without the Hollywood kind of nefariousness. So uh, I really uh, thank you for for uh, telling telling this tale. The book is Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power by Zachary Carabell, just out from Penguin Press. Zachary, thank you so much for uh, being uh, a guest on my show. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. It's been a great conversation.